Tonight. Hi, this is Amanda by Night, and this is the Made for TV Mayhem Minute. I know I should have done this when we did the Madcast last month on Skatetown USA, but I've always been a little behind the times. Usually I'm about 25 years behind the times, so only being a month late has been a minor victory for me. While Jan Brady languished in middle child hell, it always seemed to be Marsha, Marsha, Marsha on the Brady Bunch. And let's face it, it's hard to deny Marie McCormick's straight-haired polyester skirt charms. Wasn't she like the president of everything at school and then eventually the captain of our hearts? Didn't her luscious blue eyes make the hearts of many preteen boys go flutter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always Marsha, 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 isn't it? Well, while Maureen paid for her co-cabot by way of several theatrical B-movies and a few one-off guest star appearances on episodic television, Eve Plum made TV movies feel as exploitive as possible with nifty turns and some of the sleazier movie of the week content. Let's see what life was like after Mike Brady. How can you do that kind of work? Because I got my pride. I'm not living off anybody and I'm not on the welfare. Now, how can you live off your old man? A man don't respect a woman who sells herself cheap. You buy him a solid gold pocket watch or some silk ties. Let him know you're worth something. Miss Goody Two Shoes. <laughs> I made it, girl. I had to get to work. Dawn, portrait of a teenage runaway, followed the Brady Bunch by only two years and definitely showed Eve in a whole new light. From 15-year-old runaway to Hollywood streetwalker, Dawn followed in the nihilistic footsteps of Born Innocent, but with a parental disclaimer. And of course, could anything ever be as bleak and oppressive as Born Innocent? No, but Eve sure did give it her best shot. The producer, Douglas S. Kramer, was intent on working against Eve's stereotype, and they did their best to remove her from her frizzy ponytail past. Dawn finds hope in a male hustler named Alex and decides to help him make ends meet by becoming a hooker. Her pimp is named Swan, and he's played by Bo Hopkins. Hopkins can certainly entice me into street walking. Judith Christ called the movie a smut and smaltz concoction that exploits a serious social issue for cheap sensationalism. In other words, it's a must-see. Also, Cherry Bomb by the Runaways is featured on the soundtrack, so how can you lose? Dawn Portrait of a Teenage Runaway also kept Eve busy enough that she was able to ditch the Brady Bunch variety hour. And that same year, Maureen appeared in an episode of The Streets of San Francisco called No Minor Vices, where her character's dad is killing her quote-unquote Johns. Gee, who's following who now, Marcia? In 1977, Jan landed a part in a TV movie called Force of Evil, which featured her as the daughter to Lloyd Bridges, who plays a doctor terrorized by an escaped parolee. This was part of the Tales of the Unexpected series, which means it was a Quinn Martin production, which also means it was super cool. This sure-footed family and peril thriller has been called a supernatural Cape Fear, so while Maureen was plugging away as Marsha in the ill-fated Brady Bunch variety hour, Eve was gearing up her pipes for potential screen queen stardom. Also in 1977, Eve appeared in the sequel to Dawn called Alexander, The Other Side of Dawn, but she played second fiddle to Lee McClowski, who was reprising the role he played in the original. Alexander was better received, despite the fact it was a rushed production meant to capitalize on the popularity of Dawn, and Eve is not just pushed onto the back burner, but she's rarely mentioned in reviews. Could Eve's TV movie career be flailing right at the time that Maureen was gearing up for the incredible pro-chick, hippy-dippy thriller of Vacation in Hell? Well, wait, 1977 was apparently Eve's year in the world of made-for-TV movies. She had one more offering in Telethon, starring such other notable 70s faces as Dick Clark, Kent McCord, and again, there's some Lloyd Bridges action. Shot entirely in Vegas, the movie surrounds a telethon with romance and intrigue. It's like Jerry's Kids meets the love boat, but with hitmen. Or something like that. In 
1978, Eve appeared in The Secrets of Three Hungry Wives, which was written by Joe Himes, who also penned The Notorious Nightmare in Batum County. James Franciscus plays an amoral playboy, and his death may somehow involve three married housewives who apparently had an axe to grind. Eve plays the daughter of one of these housewives, and she apparently enjoys being seduced by James. But I mean, who wouldn't? This movie was a huge hit, coming in in fourth place for the week of April 20th. After this, Jan starred in a TV adaptation of Little Women, but that sounded really boring, so I'm going to skip it. Afterwards, she returned as Marsha's shadow on the totally underrated short-lived series, The Brady Bride. Sure, Marsha was the stylish one, but Jan was married to Philip, who was by far the funniest character on the show. Oh yeah, who's crying now, Marsha? For more TV Mayhem, please visit madefortvmayhem.com. A lady known as Paris romantic and charming has left her old companions and faded from view lonely men with lonely eyes are seeking her in vain the streets are where they were but there's no sign of her the last time I saw Paris her heart was warm Gay. I heard the laughter of her heart in every street cafe. The last time I saw Paris, her trees were dressed for spring, and lovers walked beneath those trees, and birds found songs. Hi, this is Amanda by Night with another Made for TV Mayhem Minute. Although Joan Collins is my second favorite of the Collins sisters, because Jackie will always own my heart, if only for making books with titles like Poor Little Bitch Girl, Joan still remains quite fabulous. She's not just the bitch queen of the nighttime soap, either. During her dynasty heyday, when she wasn't rolling around in some kind of catfight with Linda Evans, Joan was making epic miniseries, such as Sins of Monte Carlo. Joan's then-boyfriend, Peter Holm, co-produced these movies with her, and they married shortly after production wrapped on Sins in Vegas. Then they divorced shortly after they married. It would seem Joan had a hard time keeping her leading men. James Brolin was the first choice to star in Sins, but he backed out and was replaced by James Ferentino. George Hamilton also replaced Tom Berenger in Monte Carlo. The author of Sins was Judith Gould, and it was uncovered by infamous gossip columnist Liz Smith that the name was actually a pseudonym for two men named Ree Gallagher and Nick Beans. They were told these types of books sold better when the readers thought they were written by a Jewish female. However, having a man adapt the screenplay didn't elicit the same issues, and Lawrence Heath was hired to complete the task. Lawrence would go on to write for the seventh season of Dynasty, which is often regarded as the worst. CBS aired Sins and loved the idea immediately when Joan approached them. Rumor has it they only waited 36 hours before they requested a draft of the screenplay. They also gave her carte blanche on location shootings. Joan remarked, I've proven that I get pretty good ratings. And Joan's paycheck was a sweet one mil. The total budget for Sins was $14 million. There were a total of 84 costume changes, including 36 designed by Valentino. She said as a producer, the cost of the wardrobe concerned her, but she was assured they could bring the movie in on budget despite her expensive and ultra-fabulous tastes. Joan also insisted on comfort. When she was in scenes that didn't require showing her lower half, she wore her favorite pair of gold slippers. She also enjoyed playing glamorous and told TV Guide she's not interested in exploring roles that stretch too far from Dynasty. Joan said, I've played nurses and nuns, mission workers and secretaries, travel agents certainly, but the public would not buy me as Farrah Fawcett in the burning bed. She also said she thought her arch nemesis character in Dynasty, Crystal Carrington, was a total wimp. Collins was asked at a press event if she thought the audience would have to stretch a little to buy her when her character is 25 years younger than the actress. Collins gave the reporter a cold stare, Alexis Carrington style, and she said she thought she played her part very well. Let's get married. What? 
I said, let's get married. <laughs> Are you sure that's not the ooze who took you? No, I'm not. What about you? No. No? I mean, yes. I mean, yes. Yes. Yes, I'll marry you. It has been told that a total of 72 million people watched Sins when it ran over four nights in 1986, but the critical reception was not good. The New York Times said it was preposterous and absurd, a pretty production, better enjoyed with the sound off. The Los Angeles Times said it was so relentlessly stupid that it was irresistible. NBC aired their miniseries Peter the Great to compete against Sins, but lost big time. But the haters at TV Guide said Sins was the worst miniseries of the 85-86 season. They obviously don't know fab. 1986 was a weird year for Joan. She had success with Sins, but Dynasty fell out of the top 10, and she filed for divorce. Plus, Monte Carlo was a B-O-M-B. That was a movie about a famous singer who becomes a spy during World War II. But don't expect any heavy-duty antics. Entertainment Weekly called Monte Carlo one part Casablanca, one part heart-to-heart. Joan Collins said in an interview in Australia, At this time in my career, I don't want to make a miniseries with a message. Some people feel the need to broaden the audience's outlook. I don't. I entertain. Lauren Hutton appeared in both Sins and Monte Carlo. In another interview, Lauren joked, Once again, Joan stills the man for me. We do this every summer. Monte Carlo suffered from several rewrites and time pressure. It cost $9 million to produce, which was considered extremely expensive for a four-hour miniseries. But just to compare, the pilot to Lost cost between 10 to $14 million. But of course, that was popular. The costume designer on Monte Carlo was named Michelle Fresnay, and Joan had 36 incredibly awesome costume changes. Monte Carlo played against Perry Mason's The Case of the Shooting Star in Splash. Perry Mason was the big winner, coming in 7th for the week, while Monte Carlo sank to 45th place. Yikes! One critic said Collins does what is expected of her, which is to let the camera ogle her. The Washington Post said Collins was a vast wasteland, and it also said Monte Carlo was one of the worst miniseries of all times. So many haters. Collins does her own singing in the movie, so for that alone, it is a must. This was pretty much the end of the miniseries Road for Joan, but she still continues to wow us with Bitch and Fab and other arenas. I am grateful for that. Please stop by MadeForTVMayhem.com for more small screen madness. This is Amanda with another Made for TV Mayhem Minute. You know what? Cindy Williams gets enough love. Everyone loves her. I mean, everyone. In comparison, pretty Diana Canova seems like a blip on the pop culture radar. But who left Laverne and Shirley? That's right, Shirley. Well, Diana left so, but you would too if your baby was possessed. Diana Canova's career was mostly on television, and while she is best known for playing Corinne on Soap, the Tate daughter with the most gorgeous hair, and a possessed baby. She also worked on many other shows and made quite a few TV movies. 
Keeping in line with the ever-so-loved Cindy Williams, Diana also appeared on Happy Days in that infamous episode titled Because She's There. You remember this one. Richie gets a blind date with the 1950s honey, only she's a good four or five inches taller than him. It's funny because he's taking her to a costume party and she's dressed like the Statue of Liberty, which makes her even taller. Trust me on this. Hilarity ensued. Unlike Cindy, Diana didn't get a spinoff, but wouldn't a show about a super tall girl be absolutely hysterical? Okay, maybe not. Diana worked her way slowly through 70s television, appearing in everything from Chico and the Man to Starsky and Hutch. She was also the swinging lovely who was wooed by the gorgeous Burke Convy in the second Love Boat pilot movie aptly titled Love Boat 2. This TV movie, which originally aired on January 21, 1977, features most of the cast that would go on to the long-running Love Boat series, except for Julie, who was called Sandy Summers in this version and played by Diane Stilwell. Convy is a playboy who has decided to settle down with Sandy, only he didn't ask her first. This eventually leads to a very no-strings-attached kind of affair with Diana, who seems happy to have Bert for just one night. I feel ya. TV movies look good on Diana, and she went on to appear in two more films directly after Love Boat. In With This Ring, which aired on ABC on May 5, 1978, Diana makes yet another Happy Days connection by starring in the film with Mr. C himself, Tom Bosley. This movie was a send-up of love and marriage in the 1970s, featuring different couples struggling through the rites of passage. 1970s rom-com? Is there anything better? Well, yeah, probably. ABC Friday Movies Tonight, a world premiere motion picture The ABC Friday Night Movie Something's wrong at Ocean View Park. I've been all over the park, and it's perfect, Sam. A powerful and mysterious force is at work. Beginning to think we're in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. And a holiday weekend is about to become a nightmare of devastation. In a few hours, the gates are going to be open, and thousands of people are going to come to the biggest party in the world, Sam, and nothing's going to stop it. Get out of that car! Can anyone stop the death of Ocean View Park? Diana's next TV movie was the thriller Death of Ocean View Park, which aired on ABC on October 19, 1979. Despite being produced by Playboy Productions, Ocean View Park was decidedly unsexy and sort of weird, featuring Diana as a wounded bird-type character who is suffering from premonitions. She envisions the famous Ocean View Park coming down around his patrons, and she's half right. Ocean View Park was a real place that was in the process of being torn down, and in true Roger Corman style, Playboy took advantage of the demolition. The explosions were spectacular. The movie, not so much. But it was kind of cool to see a serious Diana, and yeah, her hair still looked pretty great. Diana took a break from TV movies and appeared in more episodic stuff like The Fabulous Fantasy Island, where she seemed to have a bunch of round-trip tickets. She appeared in a total of four episodes, but we all know the best one is the one from 1979 called Spending Spree, where she and Lola Falana play two buddies who are given half a million dollars to spend, but they have to spend the money in like 48 hours. So then they start catfighting and ripping apart fur coats and stuff like that. Did I mention Lola Falana was in this episode? Sold! Diana returned to TV movies in 1983 in the offbeat Night Partners, which aired on CBS on October 11th. Co-starring with Yvette Momo, these ladies were Bakerfield housewives who joined the Volunteer Police Patrol. Based loosely on real events, this was a pilot movie, and strangely enough, not a comedy. And they help a woman who has been involved in a violent crime. I think the real housewives of Bakersfield might have been great TV. Or maybe not. 
And for extra trivia, Diana dated Steve Landisberg, who played Dietrich on Barney Miller. Diana appeared in an episode as a stripper. It was love. She's also an ex-Scientologist who basically calls the cult a bunch of money grubbers. Come on, what's not to love about Diana? For more TV nonsense, please visit my blog, madefortvmayhem.com. If you're in doubt about angels being real I can arrange to change any doubts you feel Wait till you see my gadget you want her for your valentine You're gonna say she's all that you adore But stay away, gadget is spoken for you Hi, this is Amanda by Night with another Made for TV Mayhem Minute. I'm not exactly sure when the Made for TV Message movie first came to be, but I think we can assume that the 1971 movie of the week, Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring, is an extended very special episode regarding the burgeoning counterculture movement and the death of suburbia. Pretty deep stuff, right? It looks like Sally Field was trying to move away from her gidget and flying nun persona in this utterly depressing but engrossing film that features Sally Field as Denny, a teenager caught between being homeless but also being invited to what looked like some pretty fantastic gorgies, or living the American dream in the Yon City white picket fence suburbs. Neither one is a good option, as we find out. The adults in this movie are morons. My favorite line is when a woman at a cocktail party tells someone she'd like to go to Vietnam because she thinks it would be both interesting and intellectual, and the response she gets is, you were always an academic. The bland stupidity that marks the nuclear family is balanced with the equally stupid life of Denny's hippie boyfriend, Flack, played by David Carradine. Sure, he's a hunk in a caftan, but that part where he gets high and runs through a window totally turned me off. All in all, when this movie originally aired on February 16th in 1971, it must have been one depressing night. To keep up with Sally's newfound depressed theme, she appeared in Mongo's Back in Town, which was based on the novel by E. Richard Johnson. Johnson was a real-life Minnesota state prisoner who was serving time for robbery and murder. His no-holds-barred novel was as far removed from Tinseltown Cops and Robbers TV as one could imagine. Heavy. Sally played Vicky, a young girl whom Mongo, played by Joe Don Baker, takes in. The movie, which originally aired on CBS on December 10, 1971, was called Downbeat, Violent, and Cruel. It was about as far away from Gidget as you could get, and it sounds like must-see TV. Saturday. She is slowly poisoning me to death. A bedridden man summons his four daughters home to save his life. If for some evil reason I'm ever accused by anyone of killing, I will not be the one who wakes up screaming. Sally Field, Walter Brennan, Jessica Walter, Julie Harris, Eleanor Parker. Home for the holidays, Saturday night's Owl Theater at 11. Sally kept up her nasty streak in the 1972 small screen proto slasher Home for the Holidays, which cast Eleanor Parker, who played Field's mother in Maybe I'll Come Home in the Spring, as another one of Sally's relatives. In this film, Eleanor is her sister, and she's just one of many daughters belonging to Benjamin Morgan. Played with so much over-the-top zealousness by Walter Brennan, you swear you could see him literally chewing on the scenery. 
After a somewhat dysfunctional relationship, Benjamin asks his daughters to look over his shoulder because he just knows his newish wife is out to get him. Well, indeed, someone is out to not just end Mr. Morgan, but the rest of the family too, as each one is picked off by a killer with a pitchfork. While it's obviously not gory, this ABC movie of the week that originally aired on November 28, 1972, is suspenseful and atmospheric. Shot in temperate California, the snow that was supposed to provide a backdrop is replaced by endless rain. This is one mighty good time with the shocking ending that is still talked about to this day. Well, talked about if you are a TV movie nut like me. So in short, I'm the one that's still talking about it. Sally popped up in many other made-for-TV movies, including Hitched and Marriage Year One, but she was never quite as depressing as when she took on the role of Sybil, which was based on the psychological records of a woman suffering from split personalities. Who doesn't remember having nightmares after watching this miniseries, which originally aired on NBC on November 14, 1976? Sally won an Emmy for her insanely dark performance, but I have to say I was glad she went back to her flying nun habits. Not literally, of course, but I was glad she returned to comedy in the 1977 movie Smokey and the Bandit. And she got to have sex with Burt Reynolds, too. I guess that's funny, or maybe that's just fun. For more mayhem, please visit my site, madefortvmayhem.com. this is Amanda by Night with another Made for TV Mayhem Minute. One thing I'm not very good at is being mean. I'm totally grateful for that, but it does present its own share of problems. For instance, I can't ever just be middle of the ground mean. It's either say nothing at all or blurt out something I will totally end up regretting. And that's probably why I get invited to parties less and less. Liquid confidence isn't all that it's cracked up to be. It is because of these kinds of situations that I try to just refrain from discussions regarding Shelley Hack's unfortunate tenure on Charlie's Angels. I'm watching my words here, but of all the angels to grace the screen during the show's five-season run, I just found Shelley's Tiffany Wells to be bland, dull, and boring. Okay, so those are all basically the same words, but work with me. I'm looking for that middle ground. And I'm not the only one who was less than impressed with Tiffany's sleep-inducing presence on the show. And do I need to remind you that she drove a Pinto? I mean, wasn't that our first clue? That said, I still really enjoy season four of Charlie's Angels, and while Tiffany was more prone to the frizzy side of glamour, Shelley Hack made some pretty darn good TV movies. Maybe it's time to separate the beanpole model from Tiffany, and I present my love letter to the TV movie career of the most detested angel. Shall we? I guess the first time I took real notice of Shelley and her ability to bring on the bitch was in the classic 1979 TV movie Death Car on the Freeway. Shelley plays Jan Clausen, an ambitious news reporter who is recently separated from her chauvinistic pig of a husband, played by George Hamilton. At the same time she's learning to live life as a completely single late 70s babe, someone nicknamed the Freeway Fiddler is running people off the road in outrageously awesome ways. Of course, Jan has to get herself in the middle of it all in the name of a good news story. And of course, it all turns out to be dangerous and awesome. Death Car, which originally aired on September 25, 1979 on CBS, was directed by Hal Needham, who also made Smoking the Bandit and Cannonball Run. So yes, expect lots of awesome car crash hijinks and tomfoolery. Jan is overly ambitious and a little unlikable, but Hack is great at making Jan the overbearing, ambitious whore that she is. Love. 
Maybe it was Death Car that got her on Charlie's Angels, but it sure wasn't enough to keep little Miss Tiffany around, which is fine because it freed her up for more TV movie shenaniganery. Uh, something like that. In 1983, Shelley co-starred with George Siegel in Trackdown, Finding the Goodbar Killer, which is the unofficial sequel to Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Shelley is Logan Gay, school teacher by day, disco queen by night. She is friends with the film's victim, and she drags Detective John Grafton around to all the hotspots that her friend traveled. There's lots of neon signs, and one guy even throws glitter while Laura Branigan belts out Gloria. Wait, this is supposed to be about Shelley though, right? You know, she's okay in this one. I really just chose it because I love the way they used the song Gloria at the beginning. And I really like Glitter. He's got power. He wants something more. I take risks. You could have been killed. It turns you on. Something more than love. To our last game. Where ecstasy ends, the terror begins. Kiss. Okay, okay, while Shelley reopened the wounds of boredom with that last movie, she made it all okay with Kicks, which is a really underrated little movie. Shelley is a thrill-seeking college professor named Maggie, and you know she's an adrenaline junkie because she rides her motorcycle to work and then flings her hair around when she removes her helmet. She meets another adrenaline junkie named Martin, who is played by Tony Gary from General Hospital. He's also uber-rich and does stuff like stealing his own car and calling the cops so he can engage in a nifty car chase. He also keeps poisonous snakes in boxes and stuff like that. In short, He's totally hot. Well, I guess Maggie gets more than she bargained for when he frames her for an accidental murder that occurs when the two are robbing a store. Yikes. This leads to a long chase throughout the city and lots of gauzy camera work and thrills commence. As much as I love Death Car, Kicks, which originally aired on March 11, 1985 on ABC, is probably my favorite of these films, if only because of that soft camera lens quality and the fact that it reunited director William Wired and screenwriter David Levinson for their third project. Their first two movies, This House Possessed and Fantasies, are two of my favorite telefilms, and Kicks follows in that same, somewhat convoluted but glossy train ride to terror. Well, not really terror, maybe like slight trepidation. Whatever, they're fun. So there you go, Shelley had more to that Aquanet frizz than we originally thought. Who knew? For more TV movie antics, please stop by madefortvmayhem.com. This is Amanda by Night with another Made for TV Mayhem Minute. While Claudia Jennings will always be remembered by 70s cult film fans as the hard-ass but gorgeous ingenue of such films like Truck Stop Women and Gator Bait, the lovely playmate turned actress also had an interesting but somewhat forgotten television career as well. So, since we're looking at Unholy Rollers, my favorite Claudia movie, I thought it would be fun to see who she rubbed elbows with on the small screen. Here are 10 things you might not have known about Claudia Jennings' television career. Of course, her most famous role on TV was as Tammy Cutler, the woman who discovers Greg Brady fits into Johnny Bravo's suit in the infamous Brady Bunch episode titled Adios, Johnny Bravo. I hope he fits the suit. He will. I never miss. Oh, hey, I like that. Okay. All right. Very good. Very nice. Ah. Yeah. Hey. Oh, salad. Well, look at Want to slip into this, love? Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Like perfect. Righteous. Oh, did I tell you I never miss? Beautiful. Yeah, oh. this is really something. All six of us get an outfit like this? Just you, babe.
Oh, but my brothers and sisters. Hey, as of now, you're solo. Oh, you're going to be a monster. You won't be in the top 20. You'll be the top 20. Oh, but you don't understand. I'm part of a group. No, you don't understand. You're not you anymore. I don't follow. You are a superstar. You are the new Johnny Bravo. Johnny Bravo. Johnny Bravo. Johnny, Johnny Bravo. Bravo. It was certainly one of the series' most iconic episodes, and it was also its highest rated. Seeing a Playboy Playmate on television's most vanilla show must have really been something in the early 70s. It is also presumably where Marie McCormick met Claudia. The two would go on to have a tumultuous friendship, and both fought over the attention of sleaze king Gary Graver, who started as Orson Welles' protege and then directed movies with titles like Three Men and a Hooker and The Joy Fuck Club. Take that as you will. Claudia was killed by Bill Bixby in an episode of Barnaby Jones titled To Denise with Love and Murder. Claudia's character calls Bixby a gigolo and mayhem ensues. I believe this may be the only time she dies on screen, or at least on TV, but don't quote me. Or if I'm right, do. Claudia made the detective show circuit in two episodes of Canon and one episode of Streets of San Francisco. In Street, she plays a hooker in love with the cop gone bad, and she really pulls off the rabbit fur jacket. And in one episode of Cannon, she played a lady on the run, donning a black wig and showing off those long legs as she races through an airport incognito while Cannon eyes the hot dog stand. Claudia also helped Lucan continue his life as a fugitive in the Lucan episode titled Nightmare. Claudia plays a nurse who slowly puts together the feral man-child mystery pieces and hides Lucan out in her cabin. She also wears a cute knit cap. You can play Connect Claudia to the Rifleman in two different ways. Claudia starred with Jocelyn Jones in The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and Jocelyn appeared in The Excellent Horror Yarn Tourist Trap with Chuck Connors, and both actresses appeared with Johnny Crawford in the same Dynamite Chase movie. Johnny is most famous for playing the Rifleman's kid. Random but true. Well, if we're going to play Six Degrees, it should be noted that Claudia appeared alongside Joey Tata in two movies, Unholy Rollers and Sisters of Death. You probably know Je Joe Best as Nat from The Peach Pit on 90210. You know, I wonder if Claudia would have hung out at The Peach Pit after dark. In 70s TV, even dumpy guys got a shot at Claudia. In an episode of Moving On titled Ransom, Claudia gets up close and personal with Ralph Meeker, who plays a middle-aged clothing manufacturer that charms a lovely playmate and fakes a kidnapping so he can raise money to keep her in the lifestyle she's accustomed to. Of course, it all blows up, and the two crime-solving riggers discuss whether or not females in power positions are as important as horsepower in their truck. Yeah, the 70s. Her last appearance on television was in an episode of the action television series 240 Robert, starring a then-unknown Mark Harmon and a still relatively unknown John Bennett Perry, who also plays a member of the County Sheriff Department of Emergency. He spends the whole episode coming on to Claudia, only to find out that she's married. Yucks and stuff ensue. But perhaps most disappointingly, Claudia auditioned for the role of Tiffany Wells, Sabrina's replacement on the fourth season of Charlie's Angels. Supposedly, many actresses were up for the part, including Pierces Kambata, Barbara Bach, and Connie Selica. I think we all know who would have been the most kick-ass, so it is indeed a tragedy that we will not have endless reruns of Claudia chasing bad guys and flipping her hair with Kelly Garrett. For more small screen madness, please visit my website, madefortvmayhem.com.
back.